So what does it mean in the Bible when you read that someone might take a Nazarite vow, or that someone was a Nazarite from birth? Was Samson's source of his strength in his hair, or was something deeper going on? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. I'm Luke Taylor. One issue that all loyal Bible readers are going to have to come to terms with is what we do with Old Testament law. It's not the most interesting subject to all Christians. Many self-determined Christians declare their sincere intentions to read through the whole entire Bible, a lot of times as a New Year's resolution, only to see that peter out in February around the time they get to Leviticus or Numbers, because that's where they get into the thick of the Mosaic Law. And then there are those who skip over this section of Scripture because they just aren't sure what to do with it. As someone who has done youth ministry for years, I often counsel young people, who are generally speaking going to be new Christians, to avoid the parts that they don't understand, and to focus on the parts they do understand. Why? Well, I don't want them to give up and get discouraged and dismiss the Bible as over their heads and not even bother to try reading it. And I agree with that advice, of course, but we aren't meant to stay baby Christians forever. If we're going to read the whole Bible, at some point, we need to start trying to understand these Old Testament sections. What are they there for? And what is their place in the overall message that God is communicating to us with his book? And you can't do that in a day or a month. You need to do it a little bit at a time. And we're going to take one of those little bits in number six and explain its purpose. What was it teaching Israel back then? And what does it teach us today? So what is a Nazarite vow? In Numbers, God gave Moses a procedure called the vow of the Nazarite. This was voluntary. If someone chose to, they could take up this special vow for a short period of time. Let's read what the vow consisted of, and then I'll tell you why I think someone would do it. Starting in Numbers 6 at verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. A vow consisted of abstaining from three things, alcohol, haircuts, and death. Not associating with anything, 
that was associated with death. During this vow, you were supposed to take a period of separation from these things. In fact, the root of Nazarite is Zer, or Zar, which, besides sounding like someone's new preferred pronoun in 2021, is the Hebrew word for separation. Nazarites are supposed to be separate, kind of like holiness, which means to be separate. Nazarites were trying to be extra separate, or extra holy. You could take a Nazarite vow for as long as you wanted. Most did it for a month or a year. But you're probably wondering, why would someone do this? What would be the point of a Nazarite vow? What circumstances would make someone voluntarily put themselves through this? I look at it as kind of like fasting. When we fast, we're abstaining from food or a meal for a day in order to draw closer to God, to spend that time praying. And why would we fast? Perhaps we're just wanting to detach from the world for a short time and draw into a closer intimacy with God. Or perhaps we have an urgent need in our life, and so we fast to get God's attention and add more power to our prayers. I love Daniel's reason for fasting in Daniel 10. He said he just wanted a deeper understanding of the times, of the day he was living in. When's the last time you ever heard of someone fasting for three weeks just to have a greater understanding of the world around him? He didn't absorb all the latest media and current headlines in order to understand what was going on in the world. No, Daniel disconnected from all that and fasted in order to get God's heart and God's perspective on world events. The Bible doesn't give any particular reason that you would have to take a Nazarite vow. It's optional or voluntary. But I'd say any scenario where you might fast is probably similar to why someone would take a Nazarite vow. It's an extra separation from the world in order to draw closer to God, to separate yourself to the Lord, which could be done for a variety of reasons, or even no specific reason at all. Now let's recap some of those elements of the Nazarite vow and explain them in a little bit of detail. The first one was no alcohol. During the period of the vow, no drinking alcohol. This speaks to the fact that during the period of their vow, this is a time to focus on God. I probably don't need to explain how alcohol can cause someone to lose focus. It often leads to various types of sin. In Proverbs 31, it says that kings should not drink alcohol because they often have to make such important decisions that they should never have their judgment impaired. So during the Nazarite vow, God wants nothing to impair your ability to stay spiritually focused and pure. The second thing, the second element of a Nazarite vow was no haircuts. Why? It's supposed to be a symbol to everyone else that you've taken the Nazarite vow. It's your identification marker. Ignore the long-haired pictures of Jesus that you've seen your whole life. According to 1 Corinthians 11, it was the culture of ancient times, and this is still generally true today, that men have short hair and women have long hair. So when you saw a man with hair that was longer than the general customs, this was the identifier that someone was taking a long-term Nazarite vow. It explicitly says this a few times in the chapter, like verse 7. I'll read it in the NIV. It says, Even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean on account of them, because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head. So that second element of a Nazarite vow was no haircuts, and then the third one was no death. A Nazarite was not supposed to touch anything dead. It wasn't that touching dead things was sinful, but it did make you ceremonially unclean. That meant you couldn't go to the tabernacle for the rest of the day. 
And God gave many laws about how association with the death makes you ceremonially unclean and temporarily forbidden from the temple. Death was considered to be associated with the devil and the fall of man. And life was considered association with God. So the Israelites were told not to associate themselves with symbols of death. Now, I think all of these things have modern applications. But let me start with that last one. No death. Okay, as Christians, we don't have a tabernacle or have to worry about ceremonial uncleanness. But I do think we should avoid identifying ourselves too much with darkness and death. And let me give you some examples from modern times. Tattoos, heavy metal music, celebrating Halloween, or wearing a Snuggie. Now, I'm okay with you exercising your personal discernment on these issues, but you need to keep in mind that many of these things have strong ties to darkness and death. If you want to dress your kid up like a superhero on October 31st, I don't really care. But have you noticed that many people use Halloween to dress up as something demonic or evil? I don't think you should do that. And I don't judge someone for getting a tattoo, but I do notice a lot of people seem to be getting like skulls and snakes and dark looking symbols on themselves, and I definitely don't recommend that. As Christians, we want our lives to reflect life and godliness, not evil and death. On the hair issue, if you're a guy and you grow your hair out, that's probably not going to identify you as a Nazarite. It might identify you as a Bob Marley fan, but not necessarily a Jesus follower. But let's ask ourselves, what kind of things in our culture do identify us as followers of Jesus? A big marker in our times is in our speech. Do we use the same curse words that the rest of the world uses? That's one of the most obvious identifiers of Christians from the rest of the world in our society. Perhaps this talk about avoiding the symbolism of death in our lives sounds legalistic, or that I'm making up rules. But I encourage you to take some time and study Leviticus slowly. God cares a lot about symbols of life and symbols of death. For the ancient times, loss of bodily fluids or any visible diseases were considered anti-life, and you would be temporarily banned from visiting the tabernacle even if the cause was not your fault. God only wanted a healthy and life-promoting atmosphere around the tabernacle. Now before we go today, I want to look at a few people in Scripture who took Nazarite vows. Number one I want to look at today was Samuel. And this guy got a raw deal because if you know the story of Samuel, you know his mother was barren and couldn't have kids. God worked a miracle to let her have one, and in gratitude, she vowed that Samuel would be a Nazarite his whole life. You can see this story in 1 Samuel 1. And Samuel did a lot of great things with his life. I could say that the Nazarite vow did him a lot of good. As Israel declined spiritually, Samuel grew in godliness. He was separate from the culture, and he swam against the current. And this allowed him to lead Israel as a judge. Another person from Scripture, John the Baptist. Was he a Nazarite? Many think he was, even though he wasn't explicitly told to be. But here's what the angel said who announced John's birth. In Luke 1.15, he said, He will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. John the Baptist's mission was so important, and his connection to the Holy Spirit so vital, that he was told to never drink any alcohol. It reminds me of Ephesians 5.18, which says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't know if John the Baptist avoided dead bodies or never cut his hair his whole life. Every picture I've ever seen of John the Baptist had him with long hair, 
And part of that is because he's described as physically similar to Elijah of the Old Testament, who was said to be a hairy man. You can see this in Matthew 3, 4, or 2 Kings 1, verses 7 through 8. But that's actually all conjecture. We don't know for a fact that John the Baptist was a Nazarite from birth, but it seems likely to me. And then Samson. Samson is interesting because, like Samuel, he was also a Nazarite from birth. See Judges 13, 7. One of the most fascinating things about Samson is that he literally had a superpower. He had super strength. You might not know, though, that his superpower was tied to his Nazarite vow. Not only was the vow the source of his superpower, but also his kryptonite, as breaking the vow would cause him to lose his strength. So this is one of the most famous stories of the Bible, and I probably don't need to explain it all. But many people think that it was simply getting his hair cut that caused Samson to lose his strength. But actually, over the course of Samson's story in Judges 14 through 16, he breaks all the elements of the Nazarite vow. In Judges 14 verses 5 through 9, Samson kills a lion. Now obviously it was self-defense, but he doesn't just kill the lion and walk away. He later goes back and eats out of it, which is pretty gross. And not only that, Samson touches a lot of dead bodies, as well as causing a lot of dead bodies over the course of his story. While you could argue that it was self-defense sometimes, he also did things like strip the clothes off dead bodies, which is harder to defend. Samson is also at a wedding feast in that chapter, and it was customary to drink wine at a wedding feast. Now, we don't actually know that he did, but based on Samson's other times of flaunting the rules of the Nazarite vow, I wouldn't be surprised that he drank wine as well, but that's another conjecture. And of course, Samson got his hair cut, which was the final straw, but I only want to point out that it was not the only straw. Samson flaunted the rules a lot. And those are the only three examples of Nazarite vows that we have in the Bible. And two of them are some pretty great guys. Only one was a failure, and his failure was tied directly to his unwillingness to follow his vow. And some people also ask about Jesus. Well, Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene, which regards where he grew up. But he was not a Nazarite, which is a slightly different thing. But did Jesus ever take a Nazarite vow? Well, we don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But I do think there's something about the vow that parallels what the New Testament tells us about sin. And this is regarding perfection. The vow must be completed to perfection, or you had to start over. Starting in Numbers 6-9, it outlines a ritual that must take place if something happens that causes you to break your vow, whether intentionally or unintentionally. You have to bring a sacrifice, shave your head again, and start the whole vow over from day one. You can read about this in number six, verses nine through 12. And in verse 12, it says, but the previous period shall be void because a separation was defiled. What does that mean? It means if you do anything to break the vow, everything you've done up to that point was null and void. You had to start all over. Say your friend is drowning and you give him CPR and he doesn't make it. Well, now you've touched a dead body. Besides the fact that your friend has died, you also have to restart your vow. Let's say you're at a restaurant and you order a Sprite, but they accidentally bring you some grape juice. Well, that's too bad. You have to restart the period of the vow. If you took a 40-day vow and you get to day 39 and you screw up, guess what? It's back to day zero. If one person is three days into their vow and another person is three weeks into theirs and they both screw up, they're both starting over from day zero. Now here's a question. Would it really make much sense for the person who made it three weeks 
to brag to the one who only made it three days? Not really, because both of them are ending up back at the start. And here's what this reminds me of from a gospel point of view. It reminds me that all of us are screw-ups, whether big or small. All of us need Jesus. If I can go three weeks without sinning, while well, someone else can only go about three hours. Well, guess what? We both still sinned. It doesn't make much sense to mock the guy who could only go three hours or three days. We're both still sinners who both need Jesus. Let's say one person is a big sinner, while someone else has been a good person pretty much all their life and never did anything major. Does one of them need Jesus more than the other? Not really. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Wow. Did you know that there are no big sinners and small sinners in the kingdom of God? Just forgiven sinners. The person who sinned 100 times a day until he got saved is just as saved as the person who sinned once. And if they haven't gotten saved, the person who sinned a million times is just as condemned as the person who only sinned once. Nobody has any bragging rights when it comes to salvation. Just as a person who took a Nazarite vow has to start all over when they messed up, whether they made it 90% or 1%, they had no grounds to brag about how far they made it. And I see a lot of parallel there to our spiritual life and the gospel here. Jesus is the only one who made it 100% of the way through his whole life with no sin. He's the only one who has bragging rights. And he didn't use his status to brag. He used it to die for our sins because we were never gonna make it to 100%, not even close. Well, I wanna give one more application today that I, I really see here as I study this part about the Nazarite. I think the Nazarite vow has an application to our lives in the realm of leadership. And I'll explain why. Remember that a Nazarite vow was optional. It was totally and completely voluntary. It was just something for those who wanted to go a little extra far in their pursuit of holiness. You didn't have to do it, but if you did do it, you needed to complete it. Be legit before you commit. And I also think about that in terms of leadership in the church. You do not have to take a role of leadership in your church. It's voluntary. You're not sinning if you don't do it. But if you do accept a leadership role, you need to hold yourself to an extra standard of holiness. And what do I mean when I say Christian leadership? I'm talking about a pastor, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a children's class teacher, or some other kind of role of authority. If you just wanna be a regular Joe Christian and show up Sunday or Wednesday and not have any extra responsibilities, that's okay. You haven't sinned and I'm glad you're going to church. Maybe you don't consider yourself leadership material right now. And that's fine. I have no problem with that. But I'd say this, after many years as a youth pastor, teenagers sometimes showed up on Wednesdays and they're like, oh, hey, Pastor Luke, I messed up this week. I had a problem with cussing or I was drinking last weekend or whatever the case may be. And I counsel them that God will forgive them if they repent. And I thank them for their humble and honest attitude. You know, I don't tell them that these sins don't matter, but I appreciate that they're being honest about their flaws and that they aren't pretending to be something they aren't. There's a, a certain kind of purity about that. But if a deacon or a Sunday school teacher comes in on Sunday and they're like, oh yeah, I was, I was high on Monday or, or I was sleeping with my girlfriend this weekend, 
Or let's say that I, I turned on the evening news and, and they're on there because they got a DWI. Well, now that's a different story. And why? Well, because they took a mantle of leadership, thereby accepting the role of a Christian example, and yet they weren't living a Christian lifestyle. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So if you're a leader out there, or thinking about becoming a leader in your church someday, remember that such a role is voluntary. But if you do decide to take it on, you can't just be a casual Christian. You have to be committed, just as the Nazarites voluntarily took a commitment. Look at 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for church leadership. Leadership is not for casuals. Anyone can become a Christian, anyone can be saved. But when it comes to those who want to go the extra mile, be legit before you commit. I'm so sick of seeing Christian leaders fall away. We've seen many in the past few years. That story I told about a church leader getting a DWI, that wasn't something I just made up. That literally happened with the pastor of a popular church in my city a few years back. And I've seen pastors that God blessed with major platforms fall away. Sometimes they didn't just give up on leadership, they gave up on Christianity altogether. It's demoralizing. It creates more opposition to Christianity in the culture. It just pours gasoline on a fire that's already burning against us. Churches, we have to have some tighter restrictions on who we put in leadership. As we close down today, my hope is that I've brought some clarity to the Old Testament laws on the Nazarite vow, which were found there in number six. And just to recap, it was a voluntary vow for those who wanted to go a little bit extra far in their holiness and intimacy with God. For whatever length of time you chose to do it, you had to abstain from wine, from cutting your hair, and from touching dead bodies. And we have a few Nazarites in scripture, Samson, Samuel, and probably John the Baptist. And if you break your vow, you've got to start it all over, no matter how far into it you were. So don't take the vow unless you're absolutely committed to finishing it. And we related that to leadership too. Don't take on a leadership role unless you're absolutely committed to living it out. As we close down here today, I just want to mention, uh, if you want to send us a comment about the Cross References podcast, you can send that to crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. That's where we're getting our mail right now. And uh, I'm not going to be one of those people who gets on here and begs for a five-star review or pressure you to share this podcast all over the place. You know, that just gets kind of irritating and repetitive whenever podcasts do that week after week. So I'm not even going to bring any of that up. It does help us in the algorithms and getting our name out there and, and making us seem more popular to Apple. But you know what? I'm not, going to, I'm not, I'm not even going to mention all those things. You can just do that stuff if you think of it on your own. I'm so glad you listened today. My hope for you is that the next time you're reading through scripture and you read a sentence about being a Nazarite, you will now know exactly what that means and that your Bible reading time has been richer for it. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you, be legit before you commit. Thank you.